0: The Good Reading Podcast is brought to you by Luxury Read, the monthly book subscription that pairs a new release book with a pampering gift delivered to your door. There are new books every month and nine genres to choose from. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxury Read subscription today? Visit luxury.com.au to find out how.
1: You can, in your 90s, have the health and vigour of someone many years younger. What you do to keep yourself healthy can be more important than how long your mother and father lived. Your genes don't play as big a role in your destiny as you might think. The things which take years from our lives hunt in packs. That means we have to hunt them in packs. The causes of longer survival are more than just a low cholesterol and a flat abdomen. Life shortening and life lengthening factors aren't equal. Some are more potent at losing and gaining years than others. Around 80% of us reach the age of 65, but only 20% get to 90. What you want to be by age 90 is what's called an exceptional survivor. People who reach old age with minimal physical or mental impairments. Even if you've had bad habits all your life, and now you're looking down the barrel of aging and mortality, it's nowhere near hopeless. The trick is to focus your time, effort, and money on what's going to make the biggest difference.
0: Greg Dobbs here and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Dr Norman Swan is a physician, journalist and broadcaster. He has produced and presented to ABC Radio National's The Health Report since 1985. He's won four Walkley Awards, the most recent in 2020 for Coronacast, a podcast that answers questions about the coronavirus pandemic. His career has been dedicated to keeping the Australian public informed about the most recent developments in health. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Norman Swan about his book, So You Think You Know What's Good For You. It's published by Hachette. Norman, welcome to The Good Reading Podcast. Pleasure, Greg. Norman, there's something I left out in that biography, which is that you were also the recipient of the 2020 Australian Skeptics Award. Now, there's a whiff of the skeptic in the title of your book, So You Think You Know What's Good For You seems to me to be quite provocative. Was that your intention?
1: Yes, because it's not so much that people are arrogant that they know what's good for them. It's more that people aren't quite sure what's good for you. And the the issue here is, I think, and really what drove this book in part was that we're getting anxious about all sorts of things in our health. Let me just double back. I started, The title comes from a series of sessions I did with millennials, believe it or not, talking about their health. And I didn't go in and talk to them. I would go in and I would give them, a lot of it was in advertising agencies, it's a long story, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millennials over a period of years. And they would just ask questions about their health and well-being. And it was because they didn't know what was good for their health, they thought they knew and I think it's true of all age groups, is that we've got anxious about stuff that I think you don't need to be anxious about. And so, should I be on a low-carb diet? Should I be on a low-calorie diet? Should I be having high protein? What are the supplements I should be having? Is my calcium low? Should I be on a ketogenic diet? What should I be on hit for my exercise? Or is it okay to do 40 minutes of that, that? I'm not sleeping seven or eight hours a day. I must have insomnia and I'm gonna get dementia. You just add it up, and there's one anxiety after another where we just, there's just stuff you don't need to be anxious about, it, or we're focusing in the wrong direction. And in fact, that anxiety is part of the problem and could be bad, bad for your health itself. So it's not an FAQ book where I'm answering questions, but I kind of know what people are interested in. They kind of know they're barking up the wrong tree, but they don't know the right tree to bark up.
0: I can't ever recall reading a book that used the word bullshit so frequently, as in, so you think you know what's good for you. Mm. So in this age I
1: of- i myself, <laughs> you know, <the>, and <laughs> bullshit, you know. Oh, okay. So it's
0: what I really wanted to write. Good clarification. In this age of information overload, huge marketing campaigns, online influences, and the general commodification of health and lifestyle, what's your advice for making this good decisions about health and, well, I guess, identifying the bullshit?
1: Well, step one, you going to buy the book. Okay? That's of going to extend your life by at least 20 years. And good health. Look, the, the, the message here is I, I quote H.L. Mencken, and I'm going to, who's uh, a, a humorist and writer in the United States in the 1920s, 100 years ago. Um, but he was very amusing, very ryan. I'm going to get it slightly wrong, but H.L. Mencken, one of his phrases was, one of his axioms was, for every complicated solution, there's a simple answer, which is always wrong. So there are no simple answers here. But the answers are actually not that complicated, by the way, either. If somebody's peddling you a simple solution, you kind of know that it's going to be bullshit. And, you know, there are people peddling wellness all the time. So one of my biggest bullshit words is wellness. Not well-being, but wellness. And it's this notion that we've been sold that somewhere there's this person who jumps out of bed in the morning and is full of beans, feels fantastic, brushes their teeth uh, as their tr- perfect children get themselves up and organized. And they look at their flat abdomen or their thin thighs and you know they're just ready for the day. When the norm is actually to get up, you're sore from the gym the day before, you're feeling a bit crap and you brush your teeth and you look at that abdomen and you're thinking it's never going to be flat or my thighs are never going to be thin. And somehow that just gets you off and the back. But the, the point I'm making here is the only way you know about well-being is that a lot of our days are crap. And that's not being a miserable Scottish Australian. That's actually just the reality, that we have ups and downs and that we feel good one day and we don't feel so good the next. And we should not be aspiring for every day out of our lives to be great. Now, that doesn't mean... If you wake up every morning or you wake up early and you feel really bad and you're not enjoying the things that you used to, and you don't want to see your friends and you don't want to get out and you can't motivate yourself to get exercise, that's a different matter. That's when you've crossed the line into depression or depression and anxiety or psychological distress, and you do need help. But the normal ups and downs, that's normal for life. And so the point I make in the book is know what you're wishing for, know what you want to achieve. Do I want to reach 19 as young as possible so that my 90s are joyful and in pretty good shape? Do I want to look great? Most people who go to a gym are not there because they want to save off heart disease. They're there to body sculpt and look good. And that's perfectly legitimate too. But most important of all, there are answers for your psychological well-being, which are big and important ones and apply at all
0: ages. And one of your points is actually that the mind and body aren't separate. They're one unit.
1: Your brain drives your hormones. Your brain drives a lot to do with your immune system. Your brain drives how you digest food. How you digest food and how your heart is working and how the rest of your body is, how fit you are, drive your brain. It's all one unit. And when we die, the mind dies with it. You know, When the brain's damaged, your mind is damaged with it. And when your brain is healthy, your mind is healthy. So it's all one thing and you can't separate the two. And understanding that gets you over this problem by thinking, well, if it, it's not all in my mind. Nothing is all in your mind. It's all in your body and they interact with each other and make a huge difference.
0: My mum always told me to eat my greens and without a skerrick of scientific training. How did she know and why are they so good for me?
1: Because I think it goes back to ancient times. I think that 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 mixed diet was what we evolved in. You know, if you believe the Pete Evans stuff, the paleo diet, you've just got to be eating all this protein blah, blah, blah. Just remember, by the way, in the Stone Age, people died at the age of 28. So the next time you want to buy a Pete Evans book, just remember that. And there was no no such thing as the paleo diet. Uh, It depended on the environment, but in fact, vegetables were an integral part of the Paleolithic diet because that's why you we were called hunters and gatherers because you gathered in plant material and plants are what leaven the meat and so on in your diet. And we, we learned to cultivate those grasses into wheat and, and, and so on. And depending on where we were, hunters and gatherers were different kinds of foods that we gathered and that's what got us through. So if you go right back to human evolution, we evolved to eat plants. We're omnivores, we're not carnivores, we're omnivores, we eat all that stuff. But the point I make in the book is um, that you shouldn't just get fixated on your greens. And I use, uh, there's a chapter called, Forget the French, the paradox is Greek. And the second longest lived people in the world are actually Greek Australians, first generation Greek Australians. Why is that? What's going on with greek Australians? So when I say that to people, they say, oh, it's olive oil, it's the Mediterranean diet, that's what it is. But if you actually look at research done in Melbourne, but, and particularly research done by Professor Captain Tsiopoulos and Dr. Tanya Thoris, is that, in, and, and it goes back a long time, it's one of the first stories I ever did when I was in broadcasting, it was first noticed by a researcher called Professor John Powell's at Monash University. He noticed this issue that Greeks did well. But when you look at what it is, it's a package of stuff. So yep, yeah, sure, they eat, um, they eat kind of a Cretan diet. The, the diet that's known as Mediterranean is really from Crete. So they eat a diet which is, yes, it's not got a lot of red meat, it's got a bit of wine, it's got a lot of olive oil, it's got a lot of green vegetables, and some fruit, fresh white meat. Yes, they do eat that, but that's not all that happens. They often, particularly older Greek Australians, have a backyard allotment and they grow their own vegetables and herbs. So what they put in their food is fresh, which means that whatever is in there in terms of antioxidants, chemicals and so on, that are health-giving, is there fresh, it's not deteriorated. And they cook, so they don't eat a lot of raw food. So there's has been this raw food movement. But cuisine is really important and how you cook. So they cook slowly. They cook with lots of herbs. They cook with olive oil. And vinegar is used a lot. And that's a chemistry set, which gives you far more potent antioxidants and other health-giving uh, substances than anything you can buy on a pharmacy shelf but it's how they cook, it's what they cook with, and what's produced by that cooking. So it's more than just a list of ingredients, which you think, well, I could munch that raw in my, pla- in my you know, sealed container at lunchtime. It's actually the food. Sofrito, which is the mix of onions, um, tomatoes, garlic, and even carrots that you mix as a base for a lot of Mediterranean dishes, that is full of stuff that will help you live longer, younger. And then they've returned to religion, or if they ever left it, Greek Orthodox religion has about a hundred fast days a year. So these aren't Michael Mosley fasts. These are best described as vegan fasts. So I've got a section on vegan fasting in the book. So they don't have meat, they don't have dairy, sort of cheese and things like that, and fish. cooking. they just have vegetables for a day. And so maybe one day in three, it's not quite as regular as that. That's how they're eating. So they're fasting as well. So if you're exercising in the garden, there's fresh herbs, there's cooking and so on. It's a package of stuff, which you can pick and choose from, but it it all adds up. And just eating, doing one of those elements will help you a bit, but not at all. And, And I think that that's a recurring theme in the book is life is a package of stuff. And it's hard to dissect, but we know the package that tends to work.
0: There's a lot of so-called superfoods out there, vitamins, essential minerals, supplements of every kind, from protein to turmeric, fish oil and beyond. And if we're to believe what we're told in the marketing and advertising campaigns, we can't live without them. Do they have a role to play in our general health?
1: No, they don't. The superfoods are the cooked dishes that I mentioned, the superfoods are the, it's a super dietary pattern, it's super cuisine, it's living a, a life which ideally you're in control of and you can determine your future. Not all of us are lucky to be able to do that. It, it's a life where we are not chronically stressed and that's the, the recipe but there's nothing you can buy in the pharmacy that's going to actually replace that. And there's nothing you can buy in the supermarket aisles that is the quick fix for that. But there are easy fixes for it. It's not as if it's that difficult. It's just going back to basics in many ways.
0: There's a lot of talk about antioxidants these days too. Uh, Can I get enough antioxidants in my diet and can I consume too many antioxidants?
1: Not when you're eating them in your diet, you can't. Um, but if you, expect, if you waste your money on pills that provide antioxidants, you, um, you're actually taking those in doses that actually turn them into drugs, not supplements. And we've no idea what the effects are. And there's a little bit of evidence that actually antioxidants in supplement form are dangerous, a little bit dangerous, maybe, but they're certainly neutral. They're certainly not showing any benefit. That when you take a single antioxidant or even a pill with four antioxidants in it, It doesn't compare to having the sofrito base for a Mediterranean dish, which has probably got 4,000 antioxidants in it, which work with each other. And I've got a whole section of antioxidants in the book. A lot of antioxidants, while they're called antioxidants, don't behave like antioxidants. They do other stuff. They affect your immune system. They affect your cardiovascular system directly. They have direct effects on different parts of your body. They interact with the microbiome, Um, huge complexity that you just don't get out of a pill or a
0: bottle. Another section of your book deals with, well, I guess what you might call what you do to yourself. And that might be a factor of what you put into yourself as well, but includes things like exercise, stress, risk factors from drugs, alcohol, and other lifestyle choices. And all of these things seem to lead to one desirable outcome, or hopefully that you will, and what you call living younger longer,
1: When I did that reading, I talked about the exceptional survivors. I've got a section on exceptional survivors. So exceptional survivors, and maybe they're not that exceptional anymore, but the people who get to their nineties, they've hardly ever seen their doctor. Their mind is as sharp as a tack, and they're pretty fit. what tends to happen to them late in their nineties, they they kind of fall off the cliff. There's a kind of a, they they kind of reach a limit, but they're really good when they hit their mid eighties to nineties, that's where we, we, we would all like to be. And we know certain things about people who are ex- exceptional survivors when they're in their middle age. So in their 50s, there have been studies which have looked at people in their 50s, followed them through to their 90s and who does well and who does not. So there are people who don't smoke, at least they're not smoking when they're 50. There are people who are not too overweight and not too underweight. We've got that kind of Goldilocks, right? A little bit overweight, not too bad actually, but not grossly overweight. Um, there are people whose blood pressure is normal. And that could be with a medication. So in other words, it doesn't mean to say that you haven't had high blood pressure, but at 50, it's well treated and it's normal. Um, It's people who are getting regular exercise, you know, the prescribed amount of exercise each day. For men, um, you do better if you're married. And for women, if you're not married. (laughs) And every woman listening to this conversation knows exactly
0: what I mean. I think you might be about to um, inspire a whole series of divorces, but... Carry on.
1: Well, well, there is a section in the book targeted to women is what is is it about turning 40? And there's something about turning 40, particularly for women, where they realise they've got to achieve stuff in their own lives um, and in their own right. But coming back to exceptional survivors. And the other thing that really counts here is what I call control. And I have a huge section of the book on control. This is the stress thing. We all can choose stress. If you like going on the Big Dipper, you get that kind of stress or going to the foodie or watching the Olympics or what have you. We like that, we kind of like that kind of acute stress. But what none of us like is what's called chronic stress. And this is the feeling of being put upon. I've got no control over my life. Everybody else is dictating stuff to me. Um, I've got no latitude to make my own decisions here. I'm kind of boxed in. And this can happen in several circumstances. You, it often happens at work. You've got a bad boss. You know, instead of being given your targets and light to get on with it, they're micromanaging you every step of the way, and it grinds you down. The other thing that grinds you down is, for example, if you're a single parent on a pension with three kids, you, know, you are ground down. There's no latitude in your life. And the other thing that causes chronic stress, particularly with young kids, is being in an abusive environment. That chronic stress is toxic this is where the mind-body thing comes back, is that when you experience that kind of stress, it doesn't just reside in your brain, it resides in your whole body. And it affects how your immune system works, how your heart and blood vessels work, how you eat, how you behave. And it does reduce your lifespan and your well-being. And understanding that, and understanding the sources of chronic stress and some of the solutions, you can say, eat this, eat that, Get this exercise, but if you are chronically stressed, very hard for you to be able to do anything. You've got to get beyond that and solve that problem. And sometimes it's incredibly hard to solve that problem when the forces are external to you, or when you're in a job you hate. That's probably the easiest one is you know being able to change that job. But there are, there are ways through, and I talk about that in the book. So chronic stress is a huge what we call upstream thing which determines a lot of what's going on in people's lives and often people who are older are happier and it's because they've got beyond those periods in their life where they feel that chronic stress they're retired go on freedom they, they can pick and choose when they see the grandkids and all that sort of thing and that happiness that comes with aging which is very common uh, often comes from the relief of that chronic stress and the challenge in the book, is how do you get that relief and that happiness earlier on in life? And
0: there are ways to do it. While you object to terms like wellness and resilience, you do accept the term well-being and you also come up with another term which I found quite interesting, GE or good enough when it comes to well-being. What do you mean by that?
1: There was a, a book many years ago, it was called The Good Enough Parent, is that we all, as parents we strive to be the perfect parent, but in fact it's fine to be good enough that some days you're great, some days you're not, some days you have a yell at the kids, some days you don't. And as long as you're this loving parent who sets firm boundaries, that's good enough. And maybe all we need to feel each day is good enough rather than supremely good every day. And that's what good enough is all about. And well-being tries to actually give a comprehensive sense of what it's like to feel good overall. And that's that mind and body working to, you know, the, the whole integrated thing rather than some shallow sense of wellness, which is superficial. You know, who knows what, what, what
0: that means? Kind of leads me to my final question. And you do have a recipe of sorts for life. You've reduced it to just four words, fun, family, friends, and freedom.
1: Well, fun is that there has to be some joy in your life, and you have to know what you enjoy doing. Freedom means that you've got the freedom to enjoy doing that as well. So freedom is about the control thing. None of us have the complete freedom to choose anything. We're all constrained by life, by work, by family, by obligations. But being overly constrained limits that. Family and friends is that if you look at the predictors of a long life, one of them is how. if you're in trouble, how many people could you phone up to come and help you? And the more people that you can do that, and the ideal number is usually about five, if you can, if there's four or five people in your life that you can phone up to come and help, you know. That's actually a recipe for a, a longer, uh, younger life or younger, staying younger longer. Because that's about social support. It's about social contact. It, it's about being able to talk to people. It's about e- eating together. That's the other thing that the Greek Australians do. They eat together. You don't find them sitting on a bench eating by themselves looking at out of the backyard they eat together they have family gatherings and so on so having people around you having support not feeling that you're alone and too many of us have feel lonely that that stuff all comes together and in, you know it's about eating it's about loving and it's about health-giving activities that doesn't mean to say you never have a drug I mean I'm very non-judgmental about drugs in the book and we try and give the facts rather than beating people over the head. It's your choice. I'll give you the facts. A healthy person who's going to live a long time is not using ice. But if you want to use ice, you better, you better know the facts. So it's just that package of stuff.
0: Norman Swan, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: It has my pleasure, Greg.
0: I've been talking to Dr. Norman Swan about his book, So You Think You Know What's Good For You. It's published by Hachette and is available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Luxure Read. Why not spoil yourself or give the gift of a Luxure Read subscription today? Visit luxureread.com.au to find out how.